just like new. <sighs> I just woke up. Don't tell me it's time already. Another episode. Welcome back to your 12th favorite podcast, Reeducated, where we reimagine, rethink, and reinvent education. It's your host, Gautam Yegapin, alive and blessed to present today's conversation. Stay thirsty for knowledge, and I guess water too. Hello, welcome back. It is your host, Gautam Yegapin. I hope you all are having a phenomenal week. Before I share today's podcast, I wanted to, this thought has been going on in my head as I've been editing even this introduction. Something that really matters to me, and no matter what I do, whether it's my vlogs, my journals, my work, is I want it to be as genuine and representative of whatever it means to be me at that moment is. And I find that when I re-record, you know, like these introductions multiple times, I kind of edit out the best parts and I put it together. And in that process, I feel that it loses the touch of being me. It becomes so artificial and, and, and it's edited properly and it sounds so crisp. And I listen to all these podcasts. Shout out to Philosophize This, Aubrey Marcus's podcast, and Harvard Edcast. And they all just sound so good. It comes off as if they've done it in one try, right? Everything that they say is just so effortless. And, and, and I think it gives a false impression of what really happens in the amount of pre-processing post-processing that happens to make these sound as good as they do and so something i want to put more intention and effort into is doing things in one take allowing there for errors to happen and uncomfortable silences but making it as genuine and real as as i possibly can and so this is my commitment to that and um, i wanted to say this before i published this podcast and so here is to a healthy dose of errors here you go. I was really excited for this conversation because I want to structure my podcast around these three primary focuses. One, what is the purpose of education? In that, why are we actually going to school? Two, how do we measure how well our schools as well as our students are doing? Are standardized tests effective? Are measuring how much graduates are making on average after they leave college an effective measurement of how well a college is performing so on and so forth and third how do we adapt to 21st century needs when we have problems such as climate change and data privacy on our horizon and and in fact already here how do we incorporate thinking about these things into our schools to better equip our children And so in today's conversation, Mr. McCourt shares what he believes is the most pressing issues for the fabric of American society. As he is someone who has donated over $200 million to create and expand the McCourt Public Policy School, I wanted to understand what virtues he focused on when building and developing the plans for the school. You know, for starters, I think it's it's about values, right? And... um, so what what are the values of the place that the school will be located, and um, and d- does does the institution have a common good purpose and a um, uh, you know an elevated set of values? I, I think you know Georgetown. This is this is Georgetown, right? This is the, the, the Jesuitical tradition. I, I referred to, you know, this idea of men and women for others. And, you know, uh, really the, we, we live 
it's for uh, yes, to be our to to be our best selves, but also for for others and for the betterment of society. So, you know, A plus in terms of values and at, at Georgetown, and then you know, next uh, located in Washington D.C. in in the you know um, policy center of 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 this country, uh, and a new campus on virtually on the grounds of you know on Capitol Hill, um, adjacent to the U.S. Capitol. That's that's, you know, hard to replicate, right? That's, mm. you know, and then, and then uh, you know, number three, um, you know, the, the, the aspiration for the school over the next 10 years, I refer to the first 10 years and, 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 and the, um, the purpose of, of our second gift is really to, is to remove all barriers of entry to the, to the school. And uh, the goal is over the next 10 years that the school will become tuition free. So I think that combination of um, values, you know, so, uh, an institution that's that's housing this school, that's that's focused on the common good, uh, a, a a a public policy school located on Capitol Hill, and then thirdly, um, uh, a, a, a removal of barriers to entry mm-hmm. will will allow the um, you know the best uh, and brightest and most passionate young men and women that, that it, it, in the world to to you know, access this great institution that we're talking about, and and really be um, uh, not just trained, because that's kind of an old-fashioned way of thinking of education, but but really um, co co-learning and, and mm. doing and in uh, well uh, learning while doing. You know what I mean? That's one thing yeah. about the court school I love is it's really about leaning into the impact, right? It's not like learning at learning at the knee of the master and then waiting for 10 years to implement what you've learned. It's no, it's roll up your sleeves now and actually let's, let's learn and do the work and let's do the work and learn and let's have, let's, let, let's have impact. And I think that's what, you know, um, people want in the world right now. Mm -hmm. We want to urge universities like Georgetown to, to really be focused on the impact that they can have in the world. And in certainly a public policy school, I think is well positioned uh, like this school to have you know massive impact in the world. I wanted to reiterate some of the points that Mr. McCourt made here. He identified these three big virtues. Value, so what are the values that a school promotes? Location, where is it that the school is located? And can you reduce the barrier to entry? So focusing on the construction of the student population. So let's talk about these three. So I did some quick research on what are some values that a school can espouse. So I found some such as growth, community, courage, entrepreneurship, inclusion, and creativity. And there's like a whole list of like 50 plus uh, values. And so, you know, typically when I hear these words, they sound like buzzwords that schools love to say, right? We are inclusive. We are, we promote entrepreneurship. We promote blah, 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 blah. But the real question is, what obviously there you know it's it would be amazing to be able to espouse all of the values but you have to pick and choose because each school is only working with so much budget so let's say for example i choose creativity as one of the values that i think you know my school should uh, be that promote i think then what comes from that is then choosing and selecting what classes are taught maybe what is the architecture of the school so if i promote 
uh, community, maybe I want to create a circular housing structure, right? And so what is the relationship between administration and uh, children, like the students? Do we want something that's more like uh, seeing each other face-to-face or do we want something that's more hier- hierarchical where I can never say that word but I'm assuming that's close to how you say it you know and so I think there are a lot of decisions that are made once these values are selected so I think you know even when students are picking their colleges really trying to figure out what values do each call co- does each college value okay next location you know this is something that I actually had a family friend ask me a little bit about um, they gave me a few colleges and they're like, where do you think my son should go? And, and I, I, I couldn't, you know, give them a specific answer, but I said some of the things that they should look at. And I think location is a huge one, right? Because based on where you live, that is the type of people you're going to meet. So living in San Diego next to the beaches, I think it was a phenomenal place to live there because while the school can sometimes be stressful, Having this wonderful beach where people are just thinking about, you know, uh, surfing and and laying down under an umbrella reading can often offset that stress and and be something that's really peaceful. So maybe you are a student of a minority, right? Does that location, so the the parent that had called me was an international parent. And so I was like, you should look into what are the international opportunities in that city? You know, are people kind to those people? And so location says a lot about the type of people you meet and also the type of jobs that are near you. I find it that it's easiest to find work near the school that you go to. So if you live in San Diego, there's a certain type of Uh, job that's available if you live in dc it's a completely different so figuring out what you want to do and 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 locating that school according to what so as mr mccourt was saying you know having a public policy school in dc is a phenomenal idea and the third lowering the entry lowering the barrier to entry is primarily focusing on who comprises your student population so so what is it that you want do you want to value diversity do you want to value a specific ideology or so on and so forth or you know maybe a wealth distribution and so i think that makes a huge difference because similarly talking to location similarly as location where we talked about how the location of your school impacts who you meet outside of the school your student population really matters because it impacts who you meet in the school so are you meeting you know going to ucsd i feel like i met so many people in the tech space it was engineers doctors I think coming to Georgetown now and, you know, even spending time around Oxford for a little bit, everybody I met was like, I studied geography, I study uh, human interaction in Asia. It's just such interesting. I think when you go to a liberal arts school, the types of diversity you, you meet in what people study, I think brings a lot to the table in terms of interesting ideas and thoughts. And so that is also something to really take into consideration when building and developing a school. The next thing I wanted to understand from Frank was what were some of the difficulties and motivation for building the McCourt School? To me, a lot of um, real progress and greatness comes from setting out the ambition and being very clear about the the vision and then uh, getting people aligned. And, and then working towards that, you know, and, and Mm -hmm. uh, that's, you know, and that's, that's key. And, you know, leadership is really important, right? And uh, we were talking just a few moments ago about, uh, you know, Dean Cantian and and uh, her leadership at and uh, not to mention President DeJoyas. And, and you know, these these are great leaders that that really have a 
that embrace a vision and and, and and do the work every day to execute on it in a in, in um in a really ambitious way you know with a sense of urgency and i think that's also important right mm-hmm. now is that that we, we as as important institutions in society georgetown is clearly one that we we move with a sense of urgency right now because as you say you know the, the world has changed the the you know, kind of approach of just kind of learning and then getting some experience and then maybe having your chance to have some impact and it all being kind of a more gradual thing. This is not, this is not the world we're living in. Problems mm. are uh, the complexity and the scale and the number of problems is seemingly increasing faster than, than, than the solutions at the moment. And we need to, that means we need to accelerate our, uh, the solution side of things, right? And that mm. means more active engagement and, uh, you know, that's what I certainly believe this school, uh, you know, the, 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 the McCourt School will be doing at an accelerating rate over the years to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, so I came across a lot of your ideas and in, 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 in you at the uh, Georgetown Technology Policy Initiative at the conversation for past, present and future and why it's time to reset the Internet. That is an extremely large statement. And I feel like one of these these large issues that we face today is the, this deal with misinformation and data privacy when it comes to these large tech companies. So what kind of led you to shift from your previous work in real estate and, 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 and come into this internet space? Well, what was the transition like and, and why? It was, yeah, uh, really a concern about democracy, honestly. It's, um, you know, my, I'm a steward of a five generation old business and, and, uh, um, you know, my great great grandfather came here in the as an to the United States, you know, he, he, um, as as an immigrant and with a thirteen year old kid and his thirteen year old son by the name of John started a business when he was fifty years old in the late eighteen hundreds and started building roads when when Henry Ford started building cars, right? And so it was a uh, uh, this is this is a 130 year old business and, or, you know, family doing business in, in, in the United States and now around the globe. And, you know, we've been part of this American project, you know, physically helping build it and also really benefiting from it. And, you know, we've been beneficiaries of this project and, you know, a decade ago or just over a decade ago, I became increasingly concerned about the direction of things and, uh, um, about um, the two operating systems, you know, that really uh, are, that define how our country operates. One is a political system called democracy and the other is an economic system called capitalism. And these two things are, you know, they operate, um, uh, you know, in a certain way and families like mine, you know, operate within those systems and build things and do things and, and so forth. But, you know, until, uh, a, 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 a decade ago, I never thought I'd be thinking about or wondering about or worrying about the 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 sustainability of those systems. And mm-hmm. um, so it was really a, a concern about, you know, the direction of things that eventually drove us to the uh, to this issue around technology. And, you know, at first, the idea of starting a public policy school and building the finest public policy school in, in the world was a way to kind of engage and address the concerns that I just shared with you. However, what happened is sort of the, the, 
the pace of the or the speed of the deterioration or at least the uh, what seemed like the deterioration in, in you know, the, the strength of our democracy and the direction of, you know, some of the issues around inequality and so forth that relate to capitalism. It just, it just seemed that things were not getting better, but in fact, getting worse faster. And so that's when we said, okay, uh, um, what else can we as a family do here? What else can, can to, to get into the conversation and lean into this? I wanted to reiterate this point of our democracy being threatened, especially through the lens of technology. You know, with the immense amount of misinformation that is being spread out there and bots just, you know, having their willy-nilly time um, spreading whatever they want to and people actually thinking certain views are more held than they actually are, we have come to a precipice where people need to really figure out what is real and what is not, especially when there is so much information on the internet. And the introduction of technology, I think the reason it it shows to be so problematic is that it moves so quickly that it's extremely difficult to regulate. And so in that world, what can we possibly do as a society to educate our children and policymakers on how technology actually works, especially the internet, right? You know, we've all seen those those episode, those clips of people in Congress not really understanding how Facebook works, thinking that there's someone behind there selectively choosing which image to show on each person's feed, right? It's, it's actually quite ridiculous. So the next question I had for Mr. McCourt is how exactly is democracy being threatened by the internet? And what can we do about it? What is democracy based on, right? Mm. And for that matter, what is capitalism based on? They're, they're, they're both based on a concept, uh, the concept of trust, right? You, you, it, it's uh, if there's shared trust in uh, in a project. So in this in this case, the American project, then uh, people can differ. In, in terms of their opinions and and in their approach to solving problems and you know their preferences and so on and so forth, but they 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 trust we're all together on the project, right? We're all aligned, and uh, and and then you know by extension we trust the institutions that support. The, the the operating systems let's call it. let's put it in those terms if you think of democracy and capitalism as operating systems and those who, that's that's what we've chosen now you build institutions to support those operating systems and all of that needs to be held up by a foundation of trust because mm-hmm. if you, you know, trust the institutions then you support these systems and they function reasonably well and so on and so forth if you remove the foundational layer let's call it the trust layer which is what it's all built on. It's just, you know, um, then I just don't think logically there's any chance that democracy, you know, prevails. I I, I worry about capitalism too, by the way, because it's also a trust-based system. Um, but your question was about democracy. And I, I just don't know how democracy survives in a world where there is no, uh, there's trust is eroded mm. and it's not, something that is prioritized and you know uh, by extension truth is degraded and uh you know facts and, and, and fiction become 
confused and confusing. And, and you know, we have a, uh, a, a difficulty uh, d- d- discriminating or discerning what is fact versus what is not, what is truth versus what is not. And the, the things that basically allow us to trust one another and trust institutions and, and, and trust uh, in general, if, if you, if that trust is eroded, then yeah, it's just not a pretty picture yeah. over time. And we've seen it by the way, this is yeah. not you know, a novel a thought. Mm-hmm. And so the connection to technology is that we, we now have uh, billions of people connected and let's just talk about it in the U S hundreds of millions connected and uh, social media platforms that are not optimizing for trust. Mm. They're not optimizing mm. for truth. They're not optimizing for facts. They're, they're optimizing for different things. And for instance, if you are looking to keep people on your platform, you know, longer, uh, and you, and you discover that optimizing for outrage and anger is a way to do that. Um, well, then you're not optimizing for truth or facts or trust, right? You're optimizing for stickiness and time. And therefore, if outrage and anger do that, that is, you know, the erosion of trust is a byproduct. Mm. So, yeah, we have we have technology that is, I, I, I believe wholeheartedly that the the design right now, we didn't we didn't really know that the that, that at, at society at large didn't know what the internet was going to become and how powerful it was going to become and so forth. So there were never really values embedded, principles embedded at the outset. So it was very much a move fast and break things culture. And that's exactly what's happening. Mm. And, and uh, you know, now happily or, or for, uh, fortuitously, we have technology moving from web 2.0 now to web three there's actually a moment to intervene if we want to as, 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 as members of society and say, okay, now that we know what the internet is capable of doing and we're at a moment of reset, let's, you know, let's fix it and get it right now and have it operate where we want to operate. I think Frank brings up another excellent point, which comes up a lot in our conversations, especially in our data ethics class. It's that, I think a lot of people attribute these extremely evil tendencies on some of these large tech companies. And and I find that this often is just not really the case. I don't think when Facebook or Meta or whatever was created, these people came into it with some sort of intention of like, I can predict how big this is going to be and how much control and power this is actually going to lead to. And, and I ha- I'm going to embed these you know, principles inside of the product, which will deteriorate children's you know ability to cope with their emotions or so on and so forth and i think at first when these products came out the sheer size of billions of daily users was just not really taken into account so because of that now we're facing with faced with a lot of the repercussions of those decisions that were made a long time ago and so 
What I wanted to understand before moving on to the crux of today's conversation, which is the difference between Web 2 and Web 3, I wanted to understand what Mr. McCourt's idea was, is when people give the response of, well, isn't it the user's choice of whether they choose to use the social media app or not? And I think this is a personal belief that I, I hold actually more often than not in that I think Facebook personally leads to a lot of negative, um, just negative aspects. And so therefore I'm not on it. But did I not make the choice to whether to use it or not? So as long as every user has a choice to use these apps, is it really problematic if, if they choose to use that data however they want to? I, I think there's a there's a bit of a, a false choice here or whatever the expression is because you know right now there's a dominant social media platform right mm-hmm. and you might say that there's two of them but there's this one that's that's most dominant um and the and when when people are connected at such scale it's it's kind of hard to to say in this day and age, you know, don't use it, right? Because it's unhealthy or don't use it because of this or that. But if we create a alternative, you know, um, architecture, an alternative ecosystem within that architecture so that people have a choice to do something which is, you know, equally entertaining and, um, uh, but the, but the, the, but they're not subject to being manipulated by this new architecture, this, this, this new ecosystem of apps that gets built on this architecture, then I, I think that uh, you know, people can have their cake and eat it too. There can be an alternative that's healthier without giving up the, the fun or the power of being connected, right? And, and mm-hmm. all the positive things. It, it, the internet is not the problem. It's how it's being used that's a problem. And, you know, let's think about this in very analog terms. And, you know, I'm, um, I'm married. So, you know, I, I, I have a wife. Uh, I know how to trigger her. She knows how to trigger me, right? Because we have an intimate relationship. We know each other extremely well. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if companies that have massive amounts of data that are making judgments about you and I and our emotional makeup, not just what we want to, what we like, where we shop or what we like to buy or this or that, or what we like to eat, but who we are, our emotional makeup, our personalities and know how to trigger us, right. And into certain behaviors then, and that's what we're optimizing for because that's good for our business model. Then that's, that's very unhealthy Mm. for society. Nobody should have that power and have that. And by the way, it's your and my data that they're using. It's not their data, right? It's it's your and my data that they're accumulating and this data has power at scale. And so I want my relationship with my wife to survive. So we moderate our behavior by not triggering each other. But if you trigger people at scale, which these algorithms do, then you, you're, you're really create, wreaking havoc. Mm. On, okay. on society that's ungovernable mm. and so then i guess the the part that now i'm interested in is what is the difference that web3 so i guess we can maybe start with a, a quick introduction into what the differences are between web2 and web3 and then i'd be really interested to understand how that is actually going to solve some of these problems 
Yeah, it's a great question. So let's let's um, think about this from the data perspective first, right? In in Web 2.0, um, the lots of data gets generated, right? By mm. by each, it gets. You know, we each have a quote social graph, right? A digital DNA, I like to call it, and it gets hoovered up by a few few large. Um, entities, right? And that data is accumulated and it's massive. Mm-hmm. It's massive, massive in value, as we see by the by the valuation of these companies. And and because big data, you know, in aggregate is is very valuable because you can actually do uh, do a lot of things with pre- precision if you have access to a lot of data. So uh, that's two that data, by the way, sits in those companies, right? On mm-hmm. their service. It's stationary in their in Web3, think of the, the the data is in motion, right? The data is decentralized. It doesn't sit in any one place. Mm-hmm. It's um, this is the point, right? Of a decentralized system. The data is out is there and it can be accessed and shared, but it's not sitting on any set of servers of any one company, right? Mm-hmm. It's not it's not stationary and owned and controlled by them. That's number one. Number two, uh, we think of web 2.0 as, you know, um, being built on the, the internet of data. Think of web three as being built on an internet of da- a data plus value, right? There are wallets, there are ability to exchange value directly in web three that don't exist in web 2.0. In mm-hmm. 2.0, we go through intermediaries. So um, now those, those two fundamental differences create a lot of possibilities, but, they, but they're, not inher- they're not an inherent solution to the problem. Web 3 is going to be more powerful than, than Web 2.0. And theoretically, you know, more people, another billion or, or two billion will be connected over time uh, uh, to, to, to Web 3. So it, it, it will be even more powerful and even more technology, it will be even more part of our lives. And there's nothing inherent about it that will make our lives better or that will solve the problems that we've been talking about for the last 30 minutes. It's it, 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 that's why we believe that the internet itself needs a new core protocol, which is not tokenized, which is not a piece of blockchain, right? It, it's or a piece of web three per se. It's a decentralized social networking protocol that changes the way the, the, the way the data is treated and says it's not the property of these few big companies. It's actually part of the internet. It's part our 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 uh, so, social graphs are all part of a one large decentralized social graph where where we have agency over our data within that we decide who uses the data for what purpose mm. and uh and 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 now imagine a world where the apps that are built in this new world are have interoperability so you can exchange, you don't have to be on one platform to talk to somebody on that platform. You can talk between platforms, right? You're deciding where your data gets used and exchanged, mm. and how you you have control and ownership of of that data. 
So even before this conversation, when I was trying to do some research myself to understand the difference between Web 2 and Web 3, it was some of it went over my head. So I will be attaching uh, to the show notes a lot of the videos and articles that I read to try to help me get to speed. That being said, connecting this conversation back to education, I think it's crucial to include classes that teach technological literacy especially regarding how one's data is being used and data privacy for kids at all, especially in high school. So for example, in a world where there's so much information on the internet, learning how to decipher which sources may be reliable versus which ones are not are things I think that can easily be added to any media course. I think another important element to this is teaching students how to curate their social media feeds. And so what I mean by this is actually asking students to take the time and, and think about what type of uh, what type of information and what type of posts make them feel a certain type of way. And why are they actually using social media? Is it to learn? Is it to feel better? Is it to feel some sort of, uh, you know, see some comedy, look at memes? Or is it to maybe keep in touch with what's going on internationally? And then once you figure out what that is, then figuring out, okay, what photos should you like? What posts should you comment on to curate the social media feed and social media experience that you're looking for? I think these are some things that can really be taught in, in some form of media class that would be extremely helpful for children. Getting back to the conversation though, the next thing I wanted to understand from Frank was, how does this transformation from Web 2 to Web 3 actually solve misinformation? And now this is where blockchain comes in, right? Because you can, for instance, create self-sovereign IDs. And, uh, you know, where where you would have... You'd be responsible. The, is that what you're saying? It would be connected to the, the individual? You, you'd be connected, right? You, 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 for instance, if I'm communicating with you mm -hmm. and, and, and check, I know that you're a person. I know that you're a person and... Again, you may be anonymous or you may be, you know, uh, re reveal who you are. That's up to you. But in this world, there would be, we, we'd eliminate machines. Oh, you'd right? remove bots, but you wouldn't remove harmful individuals maybe still trying to. Yeah. I mean, the technology, I don't think will ever remove all bad human behavior. Yeah. But <laughs> a, a technology that is designed to remove much bad or most bad human behavior, as opposed to technology that's designed to not at all consider bad human behavior mm. and actually optimize for bad human behavior seems like it's super unhealthy to me mm -hmm. and a threat to democracy. If we can remove machine bots and we can remove, you know, me being one person today on the internet and another person tomorrow on the internet and have many, many false identities and then flood the system you know, with, with bad information and this and that it's, there are no, it's, 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 it's like a, it's ungovernable. It's, it's, it can't, you, it's hopeless, right. In a, in a, in a world like that to think we're going to solve these issues of moderation and so forth. And so now that we had clearly drawn out what the transition towards web three would actually accomplish, the next question I had was, Mr. McCourt had actually made the transition from real estate into tech to deal with this problem itself. And his approach was through his company, Project Liberty. And so I wanted to understand what the approach Project Liberty was taking to address these problems. 
So yeah, Project Liberty is um, is actually not a tech project. Right? It's a it's a three track project that has one of those tracks is tech. So on the one hand, as we spoke earlier, uh, we have a strong conviction that we're not going to save or strengthen democracy without fixing tech. So that's a that's why it's important to have a, a tech track and, and come forward with a solution to the current tech architecture. On the other hand, um, the, the other two tracks of Project Liberty are, are really important and, um, and, and may turn out to be as challenging or more so than the tech. One, one is a movement track, uh, and we call it unfinished, and it's, it, it really is uh, engaging society at large and broad stakeholder groups uh, in, in the issue of, uh, you know, imagining, uh, you know, the future of tech governance and, and culture, you know, to, to, to create a driving multiracial democracy and a just economy. Right. So that's, that's, it's, it, it's a, the through line is in, in, in Uber goal is, is very big. And, uh, the thought is that, However, that a, a movement with that kind of aspiration without bringing a solution to the table as to how to fix the tech is going to be uh, limited in its effectiveness. Just by the just as limited, by the way, as coming forward with just a tech solution without societal you know, legitimacy or embrace. And, and, and the third uh, leg is, is governance. And... Uh, I, I mentioned earlier that when Web 2.0 came on the scene, the the um, the the pithy kind of guiding principle was move fast and, and break things. Right? It, it it wasn't about a specific values statement as to what is this tech for, who's who's being served by it, what's the purpose, what are the, what are the principles, um, what should the technologists have in mind when they write the code, right? What should, what should people be thinking? And because that wasn't done, we had technologists with whiteboards writing code, figuring like, yes, this is the best for society or not, or even worse, let's optimize for stickiness. And, and if, if that means pissing people off, then let's optimize for that and, and so on and so forth. So the, the point being that we need the social scientists the, it, it, in 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 uh, you know people like you and your your peers, right, who are deeply interested in these subjects, to really uh, engage with the technologists and understand what's happening with the tech, what's what's possible, what where are the dangers, how does this tech have to be built in order to, to actually serve society and help achieve healthy policy objectives. And, and the social scientists have to engage with the tech as much as the technologists have to understand the, the perspective of the social scientists. They have to understand the damage this tech can do to society if it's, if it's, if it's put forward in a reckless way or just a vacuous way, vacuous of values, right? So the idea of, of, of people assembling and, and really debating and discussing and, and, uh, these issues 
and getting educated to start, but also then debating it because people are going to have different viewpoints about what, what, what are the, you know, how do we want to do this? What are the proper, just like you would again. And just like the way this country was formed, right? People got together, they had a, 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 a meetings and then eventually drafted a constitution and said, this is how it's going to work. This is what we stand for. And then we spent the last two odd years at trying to live up to that constitution and building institutions to support it. And, you know, it's, it, democracy is tough. It's hard, but you at least have to have a North star, right? You have to say, this is what we're, this is what we're building and why. That was skipped in Web 2.0. Now we need to do that in Web 3 if we expect a better outcome. So movement plus governance plus tech. So what distinguishes Project Liberty are these three tracks. It's not a unit track thing. It's not like a killer app or something like that that's going to solve all the problems in the world, which is kind of ridiculous. It's a, it's a three track. It's three tracks, which is a, a different way of approaching things. And then it does come forward with the SNP, right? With a protocol that if adopted would change the way the internet works. And if, if people agree that uh, we want the internet to work differently in which, by the way, uh, internet 1.0, which we haven't talked about, was a very decentralized internet. It was designed to actually disseminate information, right? To people, it wasn't it with, with, you know, from trusted counterparty to, from trusted, par, uh, from party to trusted counterparty. and. They, but it was done at a smaller scale because there was no World Wide Web. That was 2.0. And so people knew the other counterparty, right? So that element of trust that we talked about was there. When suddenly everybody's connected and there's no ground rules, it, it what ended up happening is a few companies emerged as the, as the most powerful in this ecosystem by doing what? Centralizing what was designed to be a decentralized internet. What we need to do with three, three, Web3 three is decentralize the internet, which was what the original intention was. And that brings our conversation to an end. I had so many more questions and I'm excited to at some point bring Mr. McCorp back on the podcast to continue this conversation. But I wanted to highlight some of the main things that I got from this talk. And you know, some of the points that he made towards the end where the Project Liberty was approaching this problem from a three-track solution. I was actually having this conversation with one of my professors about um, sometimes, I mean, here I'll share a moment of vulnerability, but I was telling her how sometimes, you know, I, I came from a philosophical slash technological background and I was never really good at either. I wasn't the best coder. And I wasn't the best philosopher. And so I was telling her how like I seem to have trouble being able to merge some of these things together. And she gave me some really good advice. She was like, for every innovative, effective policy solution, there is a whole myriad of thoughts and people that come together to create it. So you need people who are technologically sound. You need people who are constantly thinking about the people who are at the edges. You need people who are going to be on the engineering front and you need people who are going to be on the legislation front and as well as the philosophical front. What is the underpinning of this? Why is this important? And so Mr. McCourt kind of brought that up again in how the only way to solve this problem with misinformation and in the the overpower, overpowering nature of some of these tech companies is through a three-pronged approach through governance and movement and the tech, you know, and, and, and I think 
that that's an extremely important approach towards anything. So even with education, it cannot just be an idea-based thing. So I can't just, you know, come up with some great ideas or, or read some other people with ideas and, and be, that be the end all, right? You need also a front of where it's actually being implemented in a school. You need people who are actually focusing on how to convert that into larger legislation. And so understanding that for any long-term approach or solution to any of these problems you have to approach it from many different angles and simply just having the theory is just a very small part of that solution so i thought that was phenomenal and i'm really glad i was able to learn that another thing was connecting back to the beginning of the conversation regarding um you know philanthropy and, and and choosing how to spend your money that's something i really think is important in that Growing up, when people thought about what can you do with money, I can buy a nice car, I can buy a nice house. It was all about me, it was all about ego, it was all about social perception. But I think after a certain point, based on your network and your net worth, both of them, people gain a certain level of power and ability to make impactful change on the society at large. And I think, you know, really focusing on philanthropy and, and understanding how every financial purchase can and can be you know towards some sort of goal i think <clears throat> is something that i really learned a lot from this conversation and so i really wanted to thank you for listening if you have any questions my email is also in the show notes i'm excited to share a lot more conversations coming up hope you all have a blessed week see you next time and stay re-educated